Welcome to the inner world of filmmaking. I'm your host, Tammy McGarrow. I'm a writer, director, editor, and a podcast producer. In this show, I will interview filmmakers in all facets of production and distribution. Today, my guest is writer-director Aidan Keltner, who started his filmmaking career at the early age of eight. He is well-known in our San Diego film community, and I'm sure in Los Angeles as well. I've had the pleasure of working with him on set and on his own personal projects. Welcome, Aidan. So happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Tammy. I'm happy to be here. You started your filmmaking career at the early age of eight. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, So... (sighs) I began making shorts when I was about eight. Um, the main thing I actually did when I was young is I danced. I did that for a very long time, um, well, until I was 13, but I started when I was about four, I think, um, four or five. But yeah, basically, I started when I was really young, and then I took some classes when I was in junior high um, at a place called the Media Arts Center, San Diego. I met Jody Silly, who runs the San Diego Film Consortium. She got me on some sets and introduced me to some people. Uh, and through high school, because I was homeschooled, I was able to work on a variety of different projects. Um, at one point when I was around 17, I knew a producer at the American Film Institute um, who got me on set there. And I was able to volunteer on AFI sets for the later half of uh, my high school um, education uh, and work on other projects. And then I also have been crewing professionally on jobs getting paid as well for the last few years. Um, so I've been making films for a really long time, uh, but I haven't really been able to give myself the time to pursue my own projects as much until recently, and now I'm really focusing on creating my own films. I just remember um, when I got brought back into the fil- the local San Diego scene, uh, Alan Vasquez would talk about you incessantly. And it was so funny. I was like, who is this Aiden guy? 15, 16 year old at the time. And um, everybody wanted you on his set. So uh, I just thought that uh, it was so great when I finally got to meet you and then actually work with you. So let's talk about some of the films that you've written and directed. Uh, You have two larger short films and you've made several smaller projects, but I'd like to talk about the larger projects. Uh, Estranged and La Paz. So Estrange is about a girl who was raped and is now coming back to high school and having flashbacks to that day. And what I got to say about this film is that I loved your sound mixing. I mean, the cinematography was brilliant. The composition of the shots, the cutting between the shots, because you did also edit the films. But the sound design, just bringing her back to that day, the nuances. How did you come up with that? I think a lot of it is intuition. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, But a lot of it kind of goes back to, I mean, a lot of it's like we're responding to art, right? So um, you watch films and you're like, wow, these things made me feel something. I want to make movies um, or I want to create. I want to do something. Uh, So I think a lot of the time artists are trying to replicate the original thing that made them feel something. And we do that sometimes better and sometimes worse. But for me, I guess it goes back to thinking about a lot of the times when I'm editing something or creating something, I'll go back to a scene that made me feel something and I'll just try and look at the things that they did. Um, And there is a technical aspect as well. You have to kind of learn over time. You have to learn how to work in your um, nonlinear editor or whatever the program that you're using is and how to actually execute the thing you want to achieve. You have an idea in your head as to what you want to try and create and you know how to execute it that's when you're able to come up with something and affect someone in the same way someone affected you. With Estranged, what inspired you to write that story? Uh, So that story specifically was actually inspired from a conversation I had had with a girl who had had a similar experience as the character in the film insofar as uh, she was raped while she was in middle school. And she had a very tough time coming back to school after that experience, obviously. Uh, She, I think, was away from school for a couple months. So that was a script I had written, and I talked to her about the story, and I talked to her about the idea, and um, she gave me a lot of feedback as to what she thought was honest and true to the character and a lot of different ideas like that. So that was kind of where that idea originally originated. You knocked it out of the park on that one. Thank you. What inspired you to write La Paz? 
So La Paz was created in quarantine. Um, there were some initial ideas of just kind of images that kind of came to me when I was writing that script. Um, but then I think really it developed from this idea of a character being kind of their own destruction in some way. Initially, this image that came to me was a character digging their own grave and then falling into their own grave. Uh, but as I developed the script uh, and as I developed the character, I kind of was able to find a lot more humanity in someone um, and kind of develop where this person came from uh, and give that person and that character a lot more life. So the story follows a man who uh, was originally born in Mexico but came to the U.S. and now has created a life here in corporate America. Um, they've changed their name and they've become kind of a different person. And then they're echo through hearing a news clip online. They start to hallucinate and hear and remember all of these pieces of their past. Um, and then those memories start to turn into hallucinations, which grow into a fixation and almost complete psychosis, which the character exhibits at the end of the film. But that idea really came from what was available to me at the time. Um, this was in quarantine when we were keeping small bubbles, and the bubble that I kind of had was my roommate in L.A., um, who was my cinematographer, Akash Raj, and um, my good friend Alan Vasquez, who's an actor in um, San Diego. And so I created this story with Alan in mind, and the idea of an obsession or a fixation kind of grew into the script that is La Paz. Uh, but over time, it initially just came from, oh, this could be something the character is fixated about. But then it grew to, who is this person? Why are the they the way that they are? Who do we know who's like this person? How are we similar? And these were all conversations that I had had, especially with Alan. So when I was writing this script, um, and when I would talk to Alan, he would ask me, okay, why does this character do this at this time? Why is Emmett doing this? Um, the character's name is Emmett in the film. And we kind of broke it down, and he questioned me in a lot of different ways, which were amazing because it just made me try and understand this character better and better um, so that I really understood who this person was and why they were doing the things they were doing not just because the film tells them to do it, but because this is a living, breathing person who would act in this way. You know, uh, speaking about Alan Vasquez, I mean, he is amazing. And I'm going to have him on the show later. Uh, he is just such a wonderful actor and so uh, really brings depth to any character that he plays. And as well as um, he's a great script reviewer. I send all my scripts to him to just get his nuanced touches. I mean, he he sees things in ways that I didn't see it, just like um, you're talking about with the character. He's like, wow, I didn't think about that. And I didn't think about that. But he just makes makes everything much better. So. Definitely. Does knowing how to edit and being a DP help in direct the shot and writing the script. Yeah, so I've shot some smaller projects in the past. Um, I shot a short for Alan when I was younger, when I was around 15, um, and I've shot some other projects as well. These days, I do some crew work to make money, to pay the bills, and then the majority of the time I spend directing my own projects and working on my own projects. But I definitely think that having a role as a cinematographer on some of those smaller projects was extremely helpful to where I am now. I think a lot of it also just has to do with being able to talk to your creative collaborators. Um, one of the things that was super helpful for me in my growth was I would volunteer on sets at AFI, the American Film Institute. And when I would work with these AFI DPs, um, these directors of photography, they would invite me to lectures at their schools. Uh, so I would go to the cinematography lecture and I would sit in on these classes. Um, so I got to see the approach uh, that these very talented cinematographers at AFI were taking at this grad school. And I got to kind of understand how they were looking at the story and approaching the visual language. So that was one of the things that actually helped me a lot when I was working on La Paz, um, because Akash is also an AFI cinematographer. So we were able to talk from a kind of similar background of understanding what is this approach that he had had when he was in school and what was um, the things that they were keeping in mind so we could kind of have that similar dialogue. I think one of the main things on any film that you're working on is just being comfortable with your collaborators is super important. You need to be able to be honest enough to tell them that what they're doing or 
what the idea that they have, not necessarily the idea, but just you need to be completely open and completely honest with them. I think a story that Alan always tells is that there was one shot that we were doing where what he was doing wasn't working. And I came in and I just was like, uh, yeah, it's just, it doesn't feel right. It's not working. And he always tells the story jokingly because I said that in front of the entire cast and crew, which was probably not one of my finer moments. But the issue that I sometimes have is when I'm on set, I'm completely focused on the shot, so I don't really care about anything else. And I'm just completely focused on what's right in front of me. But the point is, is that after I told him that he did get that, and I think he was motivated also a little bit out of anger, um, at least in the way that he tells it. And he did an amazing performance in this shot. And it's just a wide shot of him um, taking his shirt off because he's undressing. um, But you can make impossibly because it's a decision. I mean, me and my brother talk about this a lot, but he's kind of figuring out where he wants to go with his wife. And I have always kind of chosen things and been like, this is what I'm doing. So I danced for a really long time. And then I was doing film and I have this almost religious devotion to it in some ways. I I put a document on my chair every morning that I read, and it says, like, let go of narcissism, embrace dedication to your work, live for something. And it kind of has these ideas that, like, Kendrick Lamar, someone talks about, um, where you're living for something, you're living for a belief in something. Because if you can live for that, then no matter what suffering or pain you're dealing with, you can always have this thing that's above yourself. And that's kind of how I feel like I want to approach filmmaking. I think it does come from a deep love of the craft, but I think it also comes from a decision that this is what I'm going to choose choose to find passion in. And I think some of the ideas that I found to believe when I was in the middle of quarantine at different times is that we can create these ideas that we believe in so strongly to be true, and we can make them real. For example, with God. So God might not exist, but if you believe in doing good, if you believe in acting um, for others and helping others, um, and you believe that there is an all-powerful force that's telling you to do these things, through your actions, to an extent, you create that force to be real. Because you create all of those ideas and you, you live by these actions. There's this other quote that I, um, I think the actual quote was, is, it should not be us asking what is the meaning of life. It is life who is asking us what is its meaning. Um, and we are supposed to answer with our actions. And I think that for me, I've created a meaning um, by believing in what filmmaking can do, or at least believing in what these images that I cre- create can do. And I hope to live for that. And I hope to live in a certain way. And I don't think I always achieve that. I think a lot of the time I'll falter or fail. But I have these ideas in my head of what is a better way to live, or what is a way to live that can help me through the suffering of life. And that is my goal to kind of live by that. I thought that was a great answer. And, um, you know, it just made me think about uh, how people need focus. People need a purpose. And however you get to that purpose, you know, you see a lot of people who retire and just can't live life anymore because they have nothing to focus on. So um, I think that however you do that and sticking to it and the more that you're about it I just think the better you get at it so what is your approach with actors do you rehearse them how do you work with actors the approach that I think has worked best has been the approach that I've taken with Alan Vasquez on La Paz Um, and I talked a little bit about the preparation that we had on that film I mean we did some we didn't really do much rehearsing on that film a lot of that film isn't Uh, a lot of very intense scripted dialogue or anything like that. A lot of the shots are literally um, pushing in on Alan staring at something in just that moment. Um, And there are some moments at the end of the film which take like a lot of intense physical labor of him like digging up a pit. There wasn't a lot of preparation done for him digging because I also didn't want to make it seem like uh, someone who had prepared for something and was physically ready to do that. I wanted to take someone who is just a corporate executive or um, a corporate sales rep in his case and put them in the situation that they are so emotionally affected by this idea. They're in so much pain that they feel drawn to 
um, take action in this way, which was something I could connect to. But a lot of the approach that I took with Alan over the course of the two or three months that we had waiting up to filming La Paz was just talking. We would sit down and have conversations about the script, have conversations about the character, um, and it made us closer as people. And I think what it also really helped with was being able to understand what we were trying to approach. I think I think there's a huge element of just being able to understand each other. And as I had talked about earlier, being able to understand emotionally what you were trying to achieve with each moment in the film and each scene. So with that, uh, I think once we had got, had those conversations, we talked about the film as much as we did. When Alan was actually performing those scenes, we could connect certain things we had talked about already. Like this moment is really emphasizing what uh, Emmett, Goal, Emmett's goal is and how he perceives himself and how he sees himself compared to others. And this moment is about this. So that, uh, and one of the things Alan said to me is a lot of his preparation was just trying to create himself to be the person at the beginning of the film. He said, I can do all of the freaking out stuff. I just want to be able to be someone who has this kind of narcissism the character has at the beginning of the film. So it was just a lot of those conversations that we had that made us become much more comfortable uh, with each other and understand the material so much better so that on the days, on the three days that we shot the film, we were able to put it all out there and create something that we were proud of. Oh, that's great. Um, And now being an editor as well, when you're writing the script, I'm sure that you're already visualizing this movie. Yeah, especially for this film, I kind of had most all of the edits in my head. That changed over time with certain scenes, um, and it kind of changes and depends on the film. With this film especially, as I was writing it, I had like what we were seeing in my head. So the script that I had kind of written was like close up here, close up here. And I had that visual approach in my head of like POV down the lens, subjective photography. Um, And I was thinking, we start here, we go from this. There were certain transitions I had in my mind. But that's also kind of more specific for this film as well. For other films, I don't think that's the case as much. For Amazing Grace, for example, my approach is more of a documentary approach insofar as the visual approaches I want to create a space that feels very real and let the camera kind of live in it more and that there is an element of subjectivity that I want to be able to subjectively capture some of the beauty in those moments a lot like Moonlight because I think that film really beautifully captures beauty in these places in Florida um, where Barry Jenkins is from and where he dealt with a lot of pain, but also pain in this beautiful light. Um, So in a similar approach as that, put these characters in a really in a very real world and then have the camera move through it saying something within that world and capture something beautiful in that way whereas with La Paz the entire world is inside the character's head we don't have any fragment of kind of objectivity or reality most all of the the film kind of takes place entirely inside the character's head and as the character goes through this entire emotional experience we are adjusting with the what they see and how they see the world around them and that's what I love about your films. Um, it made me think of two things. One is, is that I know when it's a good movie when I'm not thinking I'm watching a movie and that I'm actually feeling and and I, I'm notorious for crying through commercials or, um, you know, America's Got Talent because I just think, oh, my God, this is the 15 minutes of fame here and we're all here to witness this. And same with the film is that when it really hits home, I mean, I'm feeling what the character's feeling. So I think you do a really great job about that. The second thing is I was thinking is, you know, um, as a filmmaker, from what you've shared, it sounds like you're really collaborative with your crew and and open. And I think you have to be that because, I mean, I, I know that there are some filmmakers that it's like, it's my way, this is what I want. But I think that you grow through the expertise of others on set. Totally. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I hope to do that. I think there are times at which I can be more like, this is exactly what I want. But it it really varies. I mean, what I always want to be servicing is like, as I said, what's the best idea? What makes me feel something? So when I'm working with a collaborator, um, it is I want to like respect their approach. And I always am like, okay, what's your idea? I want to hear it. I want to try it. I'm open to trying anything. I want to feel it out. Um, but then it always goes back to 
do we think this is right for the story and does it make me feel something because that's kind of what i mean ultimately as a director what you're going back to is how your connection to the work like i said being able to see something and say that's right that's what i want to feel and like as a director it's like you're just making a thousand decisions and that's what you're doing every day um, when you're in production when you're in pre-production when you're in post you're always just making decisions Um, and it's about respecting your collaborators but it's kind of this interesting experience where yeah what you're doing the entire time is just trying to listen to the voice in your head that says this is right or this is wrong or at least trusting your gut trusting your feeling this feels right this doesn't feel right but yeah i i always want to be more like the directors who are amazing collaborators like denny villeneuve um i'm totally butchering his last name uh but those are and barry jenkins chloe Zhao, i think is like that in a lot of ways as well um but i also feel like there are ways in which I am um, more similar to other very particular directors. Director like David Fincher does a lot of takes, and I, I think do that can do that as well. And I don't know if that's necessarily. I mean, I think it comes from anxiety in a lot of ways. You feel like you want it to feel right. There's so like when you get into the mind, like the wormhole that is your mind, there are so many different directions you can go because you're trying to access this emotional experience. But then once you get into the metacognition of being aware of that emotional experience, how are you affecting that emotional experience? And how can you really honestly understand what you are feeling from seeing something because you were so aware of uh, feeling it and what you are supposed to be feeling. So there's a lot of stuff there, but like David Fincher does a lot of takes and I hope to, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. My preference would be to be a director that doesn't do as many takes, but there are times at which I do the exact same thing and I'll be like, no, I, I just doesn't feel right. Do it again. <laughs> right. Alan has talked to me about that and complained when we've done voiceover and stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you're kind of a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is is like I am a perfectionist, but it's also yeah. It's a it's a weird thing. I've thought about that a lot. I mean, I've edited La Paz for a while. It took me a long time, and I was doing a lot of other stuff in between. And it's a weird thing cuz I'm doing it by myself, so I'm figuring out technical things and there are random delays that come up with everything. Um, but I I definitely am trying to find what is the balance of like perfectionism and trying to be like is this the best like is this what I want it to be? And then also being kind of aware when the work that we're doing towards something is meaningless in the bigger picture. Because you can be very particular, but then at times that can be serving, servicing you less in the greater picture of life. Like when I'm working on this single shot and I'm like, okay, I think we should add this visual effects element here because I think this will help this shot. Yes, does it do enough for the shot that it's affecting the film really? Like, are you really making a difference, Aiden? Are you really doing something here um, that is going to change things? So I, I am kind of aware of that, and I think that can be a rabbit hole you can kind of go down. So I, I'm kind of I, I'm hesitant about be, wanting to be very comfortable in being a perfectionist, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, because like you were saying with the rabbit hole, I think um, you can start second-guessing yourself. That's and true And that's well. not good on set yeah. because the, the, the clock is ticking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that's the other thing that I've thought about because, I mean, I have gotten, like, freaked out on set or I get anxious sometimes. I mean, it, it depends. It's in different situations. It's kind of how you're doing and what's going on and kind of leading up to it and all of these different things. But the things, one of the reasons that I also talked about that philosophy earlier of living for something, I feel like that's one of the best ways I use to rationalize the suffering of life or the rationalize the suffering of my experience or just rationalize anxiety or whatever it might be. Because if I can live for something, then I can kind of let go of that in some way say it is what it is i'm feeling what i'm feeling i'm going to accept that and this is something i hope to live by i don't think i necessarily succeed in it but in theory in my mind it seems to make sense but the idea is is that if you can live for something beyond yourself if you can live for something that live that goes beyond just this material or current emotional experience that you're having then you can try and act and not act in service of that. You can let these emotions not guide you in good and in bad. So when you uh, when you 
feel good and you don't feel the need to work, you still work. But when you feel bad and you feel like the world is crashing down around you, even if it's not, but that's your emotional experience, you can let go of that emotional experience and say, no, it doesn't matter. I'm living for something beyond this. And I just want to, I just want to keep doing what I have chosen to be important. Um, so that's kind of the approach that I hope to take. And I, obviously, I, and I, I don't think I necessarily succeed in that, but that's what makes sense in theory. Well, and I also think that as you're doing films and you've had more and more experience, then it's almost like you can understand that process and you can let it go a little bit like, okay, I know this is the way things go sometimes and I can kind of go with the flow of that. Um, Also, I've been practicing because I can be a little bit of an overthinker is um, allowing my thoughts to flow, but not being attached to them. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of take myself out of it than being spiraling in it because sometimes that can be hard to get back out yeah you know that makes sense and we all struggle with our own anxiety and our own um self-worth or lack thereof so sometimes we have to get out of our own head otherwise we wouldn't do anything totally yeah um so let's let's switch to amazing grace so right now you're in the fundraising process of pre-production and and (laughs) attempting to make the film um tell me where you're at with the film and how can people support this uh, yeah, so right now uh, we are leading up, when this podcast goes live, early December, uh, we will be in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign. Hopefully we're doing well. Uh, I do not know because we're recording this before our campaign launches. Um, so uh, right now our campaign is live. You can check out our campaign on Kickstarter. Um, uh, you can check out our social media pages where you can find the link to our Kickstarter page. So you can check out the film's Instagram at Amazing Grace Short Film. And you can check out the film's Facebook page at AG Short Film. Great. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace is a short film that's currently in pre-production and fundraising, as you mentioned. Um, This is a film that I first came in contact with two or three years back. uh, And I read about a conversation where a mother had to call um, her son's psychiatrist as her son had become uh, agitated and psychotic and was uh, very agitated to the point that he was somewhat dangerous to her. So she called her son's psychiatrist asking for help, and he said, you have to call the police on her son. Um, And she didn't really know what to do, but she finally gave in um, and called the police. And I thought, this is so tragic and beautiful, and I wanted to learn more about this story. Uh, And as I learned more about the story, I was... I mean, I connected it a lot to my own experience. I, uh, When I was younger, I dealt with different things, and my mom was always there for me. She always cared for me, no matter what. And I was kind of impressed by this vulnerability. Um, and, like, I guess I was impressed by this idea of purity. I mean, I talked earlier about living for something and what that idea means. And I, when I was younger, I don't think I cognitively was aware of it. But I was so impressed that my mom always felt like she was in service of me and my brother insofar as she was always taking care of us no matter what. And to me, that idea just seemed so pure and um, powerful. And I I felt like it was such a beautiful thing to live for another without caring about kind of your own experience, um, to live for someone beyond yourself. And when I researched this story more, I found out there's this entire community of mothers who, after their son is diagnosed with schizophrenia, they're forced to take care of their child. Um, And some mothers will um, commit their son to a psychiatric institution, uh, depending on their experience. Some put their child on the street. Um, That's one of the reasons there are so many people with schizophrenia who are homeless. And I'm not saying either approach is right or wrong, because uh, a lot of these individuals can be very agitated, and um, it can be very difficult to care for your son. And some people with schizophrenia are high-functioning, and um, they work uh, every day just like any of us. Um, Kay, or not Kay Redfield Jamison, but um, what's her name? Ellen Sachs, who wrote the book, um, 
the center cannot hold. Uh, she was the dean at USC. She had schizophrenia. She's extremely high functioning, um, and she uh, has done amazing things, uh, even though she has this condition. Uh, but some people with this condition are uh, suffer a lot more and have a lot of difficulty functioning in general and normal life, um, and. That's where a lot of the time a family member has to step in and help them. And that's what I learned about is how there are so many of these mothers who have to take care of their child, um, their son or daughter, uh, and they have to help them. And after they're diagnosed, usually when they're around 18 to 22, um, for the rest of their life sometimes, they'll be taking care of their son uh, and they'll still be living at their house. They might have a job. They may not. It kind of depends on their condition, what their symptoms are, what their experience is. And I was really impressed by the dedication of these mothers. And I, I learned more about it. And then I, my dad's a psychiatrist. So I talked to him and um, there were certain people who reached out to me because they knew I was kind of learning more about it. So I talked to other mothers and I met certain people in person. I lived with them and I talked to them. Um, and through all of this, I felt like this is something I wanted to kind of capture and share. This is a story that I don't feel like many people know about. And this is something that I feel like should be wider known because I think a lot of the stigma that we have against mental illness, not only the people diagnosed with the condition, but also those caring for people with the condition. So a lot of these mothers don't want to tell people that their son has schizophrenia. They might say that they're autistic or something else because that word schizophrenia has so many connotations uh, going along with it. Um, and there were so many of these mothers that I kind of came in contact with and I was extremely impressed with their dedication and their fortitude. And I think at times they kind of figured out how strong they were after they had lived through something um, that they didn't initially know that they would. And, and only until after they lived through it were they like, wow, I did that. I survived that. And I was... I think we only really are, know how strong we are until we're pushed to our limit. So there are these mothers who would say, I've been up for the, like, I was up for three, day, three days and three nights straight because my child was um, screaming at their voices and walking around in the hallway. Um, and then I had to drive uh, my son to the hospital because he tried to OD on medication. And I um, had to bring it in to the, him into the emergency room. Uh, and he had to have his stomach pumped. And I didn't know I was able to do that. Um, and I didn't know I'd be able to do something like that. Uh, because it, I mean, it was so difficult. But I knew I just had to do it because I needed to save my son. I needed to protect my family. I needed to do it because it needed to get done. And through all of this, I was just really amazed in awe of the beauty and the fortitude and the experience of a lot of these mothers. So I wanted to capture that on film. And that's why I wrote the short film. And so it's a narrative fictional short film based on a lot of these experiences I've learned about um, telling this story. And the hope is we can share this story so that more people can learn about the experience of many of these mothers um, and to try and fight against the stigma that around mental illness and around schizophrenia. Well, that's great. Now, are you casting? Where are you at with that? So, yeah, we're completely cast for the film so far, uh, other than aside from background and extra roles. Um, the film is completely cast. We right now, I, when you're listening to this podcast, we're going to be fundraising uh, and we're going to be in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign. At the moment, we're preparing to launch our Kickstarter campaign. But once we've run the Kickstarter campaign and we've raised the money that we need, then we'll begin uh, production. We have a... We have the main key collaborators on board. Um, we just have to bring on some of the smaller um, positions and different uh, technicians uh, like our lighting team and our camera team and those people. But we have our director of photography on board um, and our producers and the cast. So we're, we're doing pretty well right now. It's just going to be about getting the money that we need to produce the film and then getting it done. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're going to... You're going to do well. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts for kids out there or anybody that wants to get into directing and filmmaking? Just do it. Everyone says this. Uh, one, I will, I will say two things. One, in general in life, we should trust our intuition 
hope that we have some morality, some kind of like deep uh, feeling of what's right or wrong. In the limited 20 years that I've been alive, I would say that it's good to take action and just create. Rarely, I think taking action is bad as long as you're not taking action towards something that's bad. Um, so if you're working, I think creating or working towards a project is a very positive thing, especially if you care about something, if you think something is right. Um, I think you should just work towards it. Uh, a lot of the time we, including myself, I do this as well. We look, look for excuses not to do something. Oh, we, I, I don't feel like I should do this at this point. I think I should do this first. I think I should do this first. Um, and sometimes we are right, but there is a good video about fear setting, which is basically cognitively trying to break down, uh, what your fears are. Uh, what actions you're choosing not to take because you're afraid of something, what are all the bad things that could happen about it, and then what are all the things you could do to make those things not happen. Um, it's by this it's this TED Talk about a guy who does that, and he was like bipolar, uh, almost killed himself younger when he was younger in life, and then has become very successful with some books that he's read and some other things. Um, but he does this tactic, which I think is extremely important and helpful. I haven't done it much in my own life, but I try and cognitively think about these things. But anyway, it's just a positive thing to be able to rationally break down why are we not doing some of the things that we should be doing and then really trying to take a look at that. So I definitely try and do that with my own life as well and say, like, am I not choosing to do this because um, there are legitimate fears behind it? Or am I not choosing to do it because there's a feeling prescribed and connected to that that I'm afraid about? putting myself out there. I don't want to do that because I don't want to take this next step that I probably should take, but I, I don't feel good about. Um, and sometimes we're afraid of failure or other things. But what I will say is, in a more succinct answer, it is always good to take action. If you want to make films, start doing it now. Start doing it as much as you can. Do it whenever you can. Make as many projects you can. Give yourself deadlines. Just start creating. Um, the more you create, the better you'll get. Um, watch a lot of films, and the more you do it, the better you'll get. So that's what I'd say. Yeah, well, and you're a great example of that because, I mean, you are constantly watching videos, listening to podcasts, um, on multitudes of sets. I mean, I see you all the time. So, and, and getting experience. And you're kind of a jack of all trades. I mean, you've done so many different positions, which makes you, you know, better aware as a director and even a writer for that matter, you know, working with other styles. Yeah, I think that's been helpful in a lot of ways. There are trade-offs with everything. What I will say, the advantage that I've had is having, I don't know if I could have done a lot of the things that I've done if I didn't do that. Like La Paz, I don't think could have been made unless I'd done all that crew work in the way that it was made. But there are also different approaches. A young director kid who's a few years younger than me, um, who's also talented, Gabe, you know Gabe, mm -hmm. um, but Gabe Porath, I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. he made uh, his short by hiring someone who he knew from his town in Oregon, and he just paid them a certain, or he didn't have a lot of money, but he paid them a little money, and he said, I can pay this amount to rent your gear, rent your services, and you can shoot this short. And they had a lot more technical experience than him. They had their own gear. It was like this couple production team out of Oregon, a part of Oregon, uh, and they shot a short form. So he had taken that approach, and he didn't have to do the years of work that I did, networking and all of these things. And those were obviously like different films in a lot of ways, but... The advantage that I had is that I did have this network. I had a lot of people who were able to work for not that much money. I mean, I, I was only able to pay a very small stipend on La Paz. I mean, I had volunteered on a lot of other projects for these people, so it was kind of a trade-off in a lot of ways. But one of the main things that I was able to get is a great team of people who were able to work really hard for this film. Um, but the trade-off with that is that you will often find that you've done a lot of this work and then you'll say, wait, why am I doing this? What do I initially want to do? There are a lot of people who are working in film who want to be directing or writing, but instead are doing something completely different. And it's a tough thing. There are not that many people directing feature films for lots of money. That's a very hard position to end up having. So it makes a lot of sense that there are a lot of other people doing a lot of things who would like to be doing that. 
But I will say, if you do want to be doing something, it's always best to trust your instincts and trust your intuition and start going after it. Then again, I'm also in a place of privilege and living. Um, right now, I'm living with my family and I have a small apartment in LA that I rent as well. But I have the privilege of being able to live off of my parents. Um, even though I'm making more money now for my own film work, I don't have to, and crewing on set, I don't have that backbone of a lot of people I need to provide for. So you also might be having to support uh, like family or different people that you have to take care of, and that might not be possible as well for you to do those things. And it might be better for you to keep a stable job and do that instead. But yeah. That that's my answer saying I basically know nothing. <laughs> right. No, no. I think you know a lot. I think it's all like what you're saying is is that everybody's uh, road w- may be different. Um, I know that I, when I was living up in LA, I had a full-time job and I was editing at night. So yeah. you got to make it work. I mean, if that's really what you want to do, I think there's always choice. It's choices. It's just yeah. choices. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of single parents that are working and they make it happen. So I think it's just about having a good family network, good family and friends. And and I think anything is possible because there are a lot of successful people out there. But again, it's just like you said, you got to take action. You got to get yourself out there. You got to get knowledgeable and and meet people, network. Yeah, especially if you're filmmaking. That's something that I think comes easier to me. Just I think it's something I kind of naturally have done i don't know why necessarily but i've always kind of been decently good at networking just because i've always kind of just done it ever since i started so i i think networking is a huge thing especially for filmmaking it's like no one's going to call you one day and just say unless you're extremely talented people usually won't say hey you know i want you to direct this film that i've gotten the entire crew for and uh everyone is my person that i know and you're just going to come on and direct this film and it's either your script or my script until you're kind of established and you've made a bunch of work um and you hopefully have an agent at that point people won't be calling you for work a lot of the time with your own films or when you're directing a project you have to kind of create the work for yourself initially um, and then once you've created the job for yourself then people hopefully start to call you. And I'm not even at that point yet. I mean, I I have made a, a couple of small shorts and I want to have my next films play at more festivals and bigger festivals so I can get a bigger audience, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm still at the point where every project that I'm working on is something I'm making for myself. And even on a bigger scale, a lot of these directors are people who are usually taking jobs they're getting set up. So they either have written a script or they say, I want to do this, I want to adapt it, um, I want to do this project. Sometimes also they get sent a script and they say, this is amazing, or they get sent a book or read a book, say, this is amazing, I want to hire a writer to adapt it. But you always kind of have to be working to create stuff for yourself in this industry. Well, and I also think just on that, um, I think when you were saying about intent and focus and um, a higher calling and trusting your gut, I think the more that you align to what you want, the more you attract it to you. So as you're going out there and you're thinking the thought, like, I want to do a film, and then all of a sudden you run into somebody and then you talk to them and they're like, oh, my God. I mean, even this, I'll just even say with this podcast, (laughs) I was coming over just to um, check out your film and how you did the sound design. I said, oh, we should do a podcast on that. And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't have a podcast. So then what did I do? I got into gear and I started calling all the people that I knew and everybody said yes. So here now we have a podcast. So I think that sometimes you don't even know what the bigger calling is until it comes to you. Totally. Yeah, I I think that that's totally true. Yeah. And I think just saying what you want, it's super important in life as well. Um, A lot of difficulty comes from just a lack of communication um, or sometimes, I mean, with me as well, just insecurity about like something being wrong with yourself or something you're doing and you don't communicate that and when you don't communicate that there's this kind of bridge where a lot of the time I know in 
like creative, well, mostly in personal relationships, but a lot of the time in personal relationships, you think that it's about you, the other person thinks it's about them, and once you start to communicate, then you kind of come to understand that you both have these similar feelings, and really there isn't an issue anywhere in between. There is no issue at all. That's why with my creative relationships, as well as with my personal relationships, I think it's important that you just communicate exactly what you're feeling and thinking, and you don't want to hurt someone. I mean, I don't say that like if you have a unkind thought you should always say it but I think you should be cognitively aware and be open and honest so that you can really try and communicate openly with the people around you and there's nothing lost in translation yeah no I totally agree and I've learned a lot on set too is like (laughs) how to be a better communicator and also you see ways you wouldn't want to communicate too. So, um, but you know, I think like if you're always open and honest and also open to your own growth, I mean, you can learn a lot of, uh, about the people around you and also who you're cultivating in your group is going to be probably more like-minded. Totally. Yeah. I think it's also super important to be able to be open and be able to hear if someone has a critique of you or, um, something like that. That's just as important as anything else. Like sometimes it's hard to hear critique on your film, but if your goal is to create the best work that you can, which I believe you it should be, then that is an extremely important part of this experience is being able to say, hey, can you rip my film apart? Tell me all the things that are bad about it. And then growing from that. Um, it is interesting. A lot of the time, uh, films I feel like are made when it an artist is living through intense pain. There's a professor I had at City College. I I didn't go to school, uh, film school. I didn't go to any film schools. I took two classes at City College when I was in high school, in addition to like volunteering and getting in AFI lectures and stuff. But this professor always had this feeling that um, there wasn't really, there didn't need to be a connection between pain and art in the same way that a lot of artists believe. Um, that artists kind of have romanticized this idea of like the suffering artist who's in so much pain, but they create something beautiful out of it. And he said, no, you don't have to. Spielberg had, the worst thing that happened to Spielberg is his parents got divorced when he was at some age. Um, he, life's not that bad. You know, you can create art even if you're not in a lot of suffering. Um, and it's interesting. I do generally agree with and believe in that idea. At the same time, a lot of the best films that were ever made were made from someone losing some relationship that was important to them a lot of the time and like going through a lot of pain. And it's interesting, like I think some good examples of it. Another Round, which was a film that was created in 2020, I think. Yeah, it was created in 2020. The story is the director's daughter died in a car crash a few days into production and the director stepped away for a week or so and then came back to finish directing the film and that film won best international feature at the oscars and it's a beautiful beautiful film when the director talked about that film he talked about how he was kind of creating it for her after that and that's kind of what i talk about when i say when you're living for something if you can be living for something beyond yourself then your actions don't really have to correlate to your own emotional desires like do i really need to sleep right now or get food or something like that i'm living for something else in addition to that like oliver stone i think had an experience right when he was making salvador and platoon um i know like for his first film it was right after he left he was like living somewhat stably with uh, his wife at the time in new york and then he was like something felt off about it i knew i needed a change he like very kindly left his wife he went to los angeles and a week or two later he got a call from me from an agent and went and wrote, I think it's called Midnight Express was his first film. That director especially, Oliver Stone especially, was always, always makes his work out of this kind of like anger at the world and society. But a lot of directors seem to make and create work after they lose something, like a relationship that they've been in, a partner that they've been with, or someone dies in their life. These intense moments of suffering seem to push someone to create work that they haven't created before. Or like the Coen brothers made um, No Country for Old Men right after they had made a film that was largely seen as unsuccessful, Burn After Reading. And then they made one of the films that was talked about. I think that film won Best Picture. I'm not positive. A lot of directors create 
work that is seen as some of the best work of their career when they're coming out of experiences of intense suffering. Martin Scorsese is another example. He was like addicted to cocaine, very heavily addicted to cocaine. He was in the hospital when Robert De Niro came to him and said, if you want to live, come make this film with me. If you want to die, you can stay here and die. With me. So he made Raging Bull. And like, that was one of the best films of his career. And he, when he talked about creating that film, he talked about how intensely, like, I listened to some interviews, and it, he spent an extremely long time in post-production on that film, because he thought that that was going to be, like, the last film he ever made, so he said, if I'm going to make this film, I'm going to make it the best it can be, and I'm going to work extremely hard, and so he, like, was spent, I think, an extremely long time editing that film, just because he felt like that need to create, um, and I know for me as well, a lot of the time, the thing that drives me to take action will be a feeling of dissatisfaction and pain in the world. This is something I talked a lot about with Alan, is that I do feel like it is often that dissatisfaction with yourself that pushes you to create and sometimes create something better. But that experience of dissatisfaction is also an experience of suffering in a lot of ways, which creates this interesting paradigm where people want to live the life of these people that have created great work, and yet the experience they are probably emotionally living is one of decent suffering because they're so dissatisfied with themselves and their work that that pushes them to create better work and more work and more work. Um, and I think in some ways, if you really wanted to live a peaceful life, the idea me and Alan talked about is letting go and forgiving and acceptance, which I think will give you peace. But I don't think that peace will necessarily be conducive to great work. Um, so that is something that I've never really figured out an answer to is, is there a way, and maybe there is, I, I've talked to Alan about this and he said, yeah, I think it's possible, Aiden. I don't think you have to live in this experience of believing that you have to suffer because if you believe you have to suffer to create great work, you're going to suffer to create great work. You're going to live that experience you believe to be true. But if you believe you can live a life of happiness and joy and create as well, then you can live by that life and you don't have to live by these rules that you've set out. Well, and I love what you said because I like to take a different approach because, you know, all these um, types of suffering happen to you and nor, I think, would you want that. But I like to, when I'm writing a character or even just watching a film where I'm really getting in, I go into feeling what they feel like. So I just transform, like, what would it feel like if I just lost my mate to death? How would I feel? And I can get myself to start crying right at that moment. Like, I can get right into it. So maybe that's another way to do it is instead of actually feeling like you have to suffer yourself, just put yourself in the sufferer. And how would that feel? And get that emotional response to it. Maybe you should be an actress. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> I, I don't think there are too many people who can just cry on demand. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I as a kid, I used to want to be an actress. And then I realized, oh, my God, I have to be in front of everybody. No way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, this has been a great conversation. Yeah. Well, it was my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I hope it wasn't too rambly. But, no. But thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to get out there and make a film. Reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. And follow me on Instagram at Tammy McGarrow. Until we meet again, what's your story? <laughs>